8. Choir's Garden, and Old Woodwork, perchance a 14th century rude screen, encaustic tiles bearing the arms of the abbey with which in former days the church was connected, monuments and stained glass, are all carted away and destroyed, and the triumph of vandalism is complete. That is an oft-told tale which finds its counterpart in many towns and villages. The entire and absolute destruction of the old church by ignorant vandals who work endless mischief and know not what they do. There is the village of Little Whitnam, in our county Umperks, not far from Sinadun Hill, an ancient earthwork covered with trees, that forms so conspicuous an object to the travelers by the Great Western Railway from Didcot to Oxford. About forty years ago terrible things were done in the church of that village. The vicar was a cough. There was a very beautiful chantry chapel on the south side of the choir full of magnificent marble monuments to the memory of various members of the Dunn's family. This family, once great and powerful, whose great house stood hard by on the north of the church only the terraces of which remain is now, it is believed, extinct. The vicar thought that he might be held responsible for the dilapidations of this old chantry, so he pulled it down, and broke all the marble tombs with axes and hammers. You can see the shattered remains that still show signs of beauty in one of the adjoining barns. Some few were set up in the tower, the old font became a pig trough, the body of the church was entirely renewed, and vandalism reigned supreme. In our county of Berks there were at the beginning of the last century 170 ancient parish churches, of these, 30 have been pulled down and entirely rebuilt, 6 of them on entirely new sites, 1 has been burnt down, 1 disused, before 1890-100 were restored, some of them most drastically and several others have been restored since, but with greater respect to old work. A favorite method of restoration was adopted in many instances. A church had a Norman doorway and pillars in the nave, sundry additions and alterations had been made in subsequent periods, and examples of early English, decorated, and perpendicular styles of architecture were observable, with, perhaps, a Renaissance porch or other later feature. What did the early restorers do? They said, this is a Norman church, all its details should be Norman too. So they proceeded to take away these later additions and imitate Norman work as much as they could by breaking down the perpendicular or decorated tracery in the windows and putting in large round-headed windows their conception of Norman work, but far different from what any Norman builder would have contrived. Thus these good people entirely destroyed the history of the building, and caused to vanish much that was interesting and important such as the deplorable story of the restoration of many a parish church, an amusing book, entitled Hints to Some Church Wardens, with a few illustrations relative to the repair and improvement of parish churches, was published in 1825. The author, with much satire, depicts the very many splendid, curious, and convenient ideas which had emanated from those church wardens who had attained perfection as planners and architects. He apologizes for not giving the names of these superior men and the dates of the improvements they had achieved, but is sure that such works as theirs must immortalize them, not only in their parishes, but in their counties, and, he trusts, in the kingdom at large. The following are some of the hints how to affix a porch to an old church. If the church is of stone, let the porch be of brick, the roof slated, and the entrance to it of the improved Gothic called modern, being an arch formed by an acute angle. The porch should be placed so as to stop up what might be called a useless window, and as it sometimes happens that there is an ancient Saxon entrance, let it be carefully bricked up, and perhaps plastered, so as to conceal as much as possible of the zigzag ornament used in buildings of this kind. 
Such improvements cannot fail to ensure celebrity to church wardens of future ages. How to add a vestry to an old church? The building here proposed is to be a bright brick, with a slated roof and sash windows, with a small door on one side, and an island moreover, to be adorned with a most tasty and ornamental brick chimney, which terminates at the chancel end. The position of the building should be against two old Gothic windows, which, having the advantage of hiding them nearly altogether, when contrasted with the dull and uniform surface of an old stone church, has a lively and most imposing effect. How to ornament the top or battlements of a tower belonging to an ancient church? Place on each battlement, vases, candlesticks, and pineapples alternately, and the effect will be striking. Vases have many votaries amongst those worthy members of society. The church wardens, candlesticks are of ancient origin, and represent, from the highest authority, the light of the churches, but as in most churches weathercocks are used, I would here recommend the admirers of novelty and improvement to adopt a pair of snuffers, which might also be considered as a full emblem for reinvigorating the lights from the candlesticks, the pineapple ornament having in so many churches been judiciously substituted for gothic, cannot fail to please. Some such ornament should also be placed at the top of the church, and at the chancel end, but as this publication does not restrict any church warden of real taste, and as the ornaments here recommended are in a common way made of stone, if any would wish to distinguish his year of office, perhaps he would do it brilliantly by painting them all bright red. Doubtless our offer means Norman. Other valuable suggestions are made in this curious and amusing work such as, how to repair quartrefuie windows, by cutting out all the partitions and making them quite round, how to adapt a new church to an old tower with most taste and effect, the most attractive features being light iron partitions instead of stone mullions for the windows, with shutters painted yellow, bright brick walls and slate roof, and a door painted sky blue, you can best ornament a chancel by placing colossal figures of Moses and Aaron supporting the altar, huge tables of the commandments, and clusters of grapes and pomegranates in festoons and clusters of monuments, vases upon pillars, the commandments in sky blue, clouds carved out of wood supporting angels, are some of the ideas recommended, instead of a Norman font you can substitute one resembling a punch bowl, with the pedestal and legs of a round claw table, and it would be well to rear a massive pulpit in the center of the chancel arch, hung with crimson and gold lace, with gilt chandeliers, large sounding board with a vase at the top, a stub is always necessary, it can be placed in the center of the chancel, and the stub pipe can be carried through the upper part of the east window, and then by an elbow conveyed to the crest of the roof over the window, the cross being taken down to make room for the chimney, such are some of the recommendations of this ingenious writer, which are ably illustrated by effective drawings, they are not all imaginative, Many old churches tell the tragic story of their mutilation at the hands of a rector who has discovered Parker's glossary, knows nothing about art, but does know what he likes. Advised by his wife who has visited some of the cathedrals, and by an architect who has been elaborately educated in the principles of Roman Renaissance, but who knows no more of Lombard, Byzantine, or Gothic art than he does of the dynasties of ancient Egypt. When a church has fallen into the hands of such renovators and been heavily restored, if the ghost of one of its medieval builders came to view his work he would scarcely recognize it. Well says Mr. Thomas Hardy, to restore the great carcasses of medievalism in the remote nooks of western England seems a not less incongruous act than to set about renovating the adjoining crags themselves. 
and well might he sigh over the destruction of the grand old tower of Endelstow Church and the erection of what the vicar called a splendid tower, designed by a first-rate London man in the newest style of Gothic art and full of Christian feeling. A china punch bowl was actually presented by Sir T. Drake to be used as a font at Woodbury, Devon. The novelist's remarks on restoration are most valuable. Entire destruction under the saving name has been effected on so gigantic a scale that the protection of structures, there being kept wind and weatherproof, counts as nothing in the balance. Its enormous magnitude is realized by few who have not gone personally from parish to parish through a considerable district, and compared existing churches there with records, traditions, and memories of what they formerly were. The shifting of old windows and other details irregularly spaced, and spacing them at exact distances has been one process. The deportation of the original chancel arch to an obscure nook and the insertion of a wider new one, to throw open the view of the choir, is a practice by no means extinct. Next in turn to the redesigning of old buildings and parts of them comes the devastation caused by letting restorations by contract, with a clause in the specification requesting the builder to give a price for old materials, such as the lead of the roofs, to be replaced by tiles or slates, and the oak of the pews, pulpit altar rails, etc. to be replaced by deal. Apart from these irregularities it has been a principle that anything later than Henry VII is anathema and to be cast out, that Wimborne Minster fine Jacobean canopies have been removed from Tudor stalls for the offense only of being Jacobean, that a hotel in Cornwall a tea garden was, and probably is still, ornament with seats constructed of the carved oak from a neighboring church no doubt the restorer's perquisite. Poor places which cannot afford to pay a clerk of the works suffer much in these ecclesiastical convulsions. In one case I visited, as a youth, the careful repair of an interesting early English window had been specified, but it was gone. The contractor, who had met me on the spot, replied genially to my gaze of concern, Well, now, I said to myself when I looked at the old thing, I won't stand upon a pound or two, I'll give em a new winder now I am about it and make a good job of it. How's Omover? A caricature in New Stone of the old window had taken its place. In the same church was an old oak root screen in the perpendicular style with some gilding and coloring still remaining. Some repairs had been specified, but I beheld in its place a new screen of varnished deal. Well, replied the builder, more genial than ever, please God, now I am about it. I'll do the thing well, cost what it will. The old screen had been used up to boil the workmen's scales, though I were not much at that, such as the terrible report of this amazing iconoclasm. Some wise acres, the vicar and church wardens, once determined to pull down their old church and build a new one, so they met in solemn conclave and passed the following sagacious resolutions, 1. That a new church should be built, 2. That the materials of the old church should be used in the construction of the new, 3 that the old church should not be pulled down until the new one be built. How they contrived to combine the second and third resolutions history recordeth not. Even when the church was spared the restorers were guilty of strange enormities in the embellishment and decoration of the sacred building. Whitewash was vigorously applied to the walls and pews, carvings, pulpit, and font. If curious mural paintings adorned the walls, the hideous whitewash soon obliterated every trace and produced those modest hues which the native appearance of the stone so pleasingly bestows. But whitewash has one redeeming virtue. It preserves and saves for future generations treasures which otherwise might have been destroyed. Happily all decoration of churches has not been carried out in the reckless fashion thus described by a friend of the writer. 
an old Cambridgeshire incumbent, who had done nothing to his church for many years, was bidden by the archdeacon to brighten matters up a little. The whole of the woodwork wanted repainting and varnishing, a serious matter for a poor man. His wife, a very capable lady, took the matter in hand. She went to the local carpenter and wheelwright and bought up the whole of his stock of that particular paint with which farm carts and wagons are painted, coarse but serviceable, and of the brightest possible red, blue, green, and yellow hues. With her own hands she painted the whole of the interior pulpit, pews, doors, etc. and probably the wooden altar, using the colors as her fancy dictated, or as the various colors held out. The effect was remarkable. A succeeding rector began at once the work of restoration, scraping off the paint and substituting oak varnish, but when my friend took a morning service for him the work had not been completed, and he preached from a bright green pulpit. The contents of our parish churches, furniture and plate, are rapidly vanishing. England has ever been remarkable for the number and beauty of its rude screens. At the Reformation the roods were destroyed and many screens with them, but many of the latter were retained and although through neglect or wanton destruction they have ever since been disappearing, yet hundreds still exist. Their number island however, sadly decreased. In Cheshire, restoration has removed nearly all examples, except Ashbury, Moberly, Malpas, and a few others. The churches of Bunbury and Danbury have lost some good screen work since 1860. In Derbyshire screens suffered severely in the 19th century and the records of each county show the disappearance of many notable examples, though happily Devonshire, Somerset, and several other shires still possess some beautiful specimens of medieval woodwork. A large number of Jacobean pulpits with their curious carvings had vanished. A pious donor wishes to give a new pulpit to a church in memory of a relative, and the old pulpit is carved away to make room for its modern and often inferior substitute, old stalls and misericords. Seats and benches with poppy-head terminations have often been made to vanish, and the pillaging of our churches at the Reformation and during the Commonwealth period and at the hands of the restorers has done much to deprive our churches of their ancient furniture. English Church Furniture By Dr. Cox and A. Harvey Most churches had two or three chests or coffers for the storing of valuable ornaments and vestments. Each chantry had its chest or ark, as it was sometimes called, e.g. the Collegiate Church of St. Mary. Warwick, had in 1464, I old airbound bound J. old ark to put investments, J. old ark at the other end, J. old coopher air bond having a long look of the old fashion, and J. last a new coopher having e looks called the tertiary coffrey and certain almaries, in the inner house J. new high almarie with my doors took a pay in the evidence of the church and J. great old ark and certain old almarie's and in the house afore the chapter house J. Old Airbound Coffrey having high feet and rings of iron in the ends thereof to have it by. It is almost exceptional to find any parish of 500 inhabitants which does not possess a parish chest. The parish chest of the parish in which I am writing is now in the vestry of the church here. It has been used for generations as a cold box. It is exceptional to find anything so full as wholesome fuel inside these parish chests. Their contents have in the great majority of instances utterly perished, and the miserable destruction of those interesting parish records testifies to the almost universal neglect which they have suffered at the hands, not of the parsons, who as a rule have kept with remarkable care the register books for which they have always been responsible, but of the church wardens and overseers, who have let them perish without a thought of their value, as a rule the old parish chests have fallen to pieces, or worse and their contents have been used to light the church stove, 
except in those very few cases where the chests were furnished with two or more keys, each key being of different wards from the other, and each being handed over to a different functionary when the time of the parish meeting came round. The Parish Councillor, an article by Dr. Jessup, September 20th, 1895, when the ornaments and vestments were carved away from the church in the time of Edward V.I. Many of the church chests lost their use, and were sold or destroyed, the poorest only being kept for registers and documents. Very magnificent were some of these chests which have survived, such as that at Itlington, Suffolk, Church Brampton, Nordhans, Rugby, Westminster Abbey, and Chichester. The old chest at Heckfield may have been one of those ordered in the reign of King John for the collection of the alms of the faithful for the Fifth Crusade. The artist, Mr. Fred Rowe has written a valuable work on chests, to which those who desire to know about these interesting objects can refer. Another much diminishing store of treasure belonging to our churches is the church plate. Many churches possess some old plate perhaps a pre-reformation chalice. It is worn by age, and the clergyman, ignorant of its value, takes it to a jeweler to be repaired. He is told that it is old and thin and cannot easily be repaired and is offered very kindly by the jeweler in return for this old chalice a brand new one with a patent added. He is delighted, and the old chalice finds its way to Christie's, realizes a large sum, and goes into the collection of some millionaire. Not long ago the Council of the Society of Antiquaries issued a memorandum to the bishops and archdeacons of the Anglican Church calling attention to the increasing frequency of the sale of old or obsolete church plate. This is of two kinds, one pieces of plate or other articles of a domestic character not especially made, nor perhaps well fitted for the service of the church, to chalices, patents, flagons, or plate generally, made especially for ecclesiastical use. But now, for reasons of change of fashion or from the articles themselves being worn out, no longer desired to be used, a church possibly is in need of funds for restoration and an effort is naturally made to turn such articles into money. The officials decide to sell any objects the church may have of the first kind. Thus the property of the Church of England finds its way abroad, and is thus lost to the nation. With regard to the sacred vessels of the second class, it is undignified, if not a desecration, that vessels of such a sacred character should be subjected to a sale by auction and afterwards used as table ornaments by collectors to whom their religious significance makes no appeal. We are reminded of the profanity of Belshazzar's feast. It would be far better to place such objects for safe custody and preservation in some local museum. Not long ago a church in Knightsbridge was removed and rebuilt on another site. It had a communion cup presented by Archbishop Laud. Some addition was required for the new church, and it was proposed to sell the chalice to help in defraying the cost of this addition. A London dealer offered 500 guineas for it and doubtless by this time it has passed into private hands and left the country. This is only one instance out of many of the depletion of the church of its treasures. It must not be forgotten that although the vicar and church wardens are for the time being trustees of the church plate and furniture, yet the property really is vested in the parishioners. It ought not to be sold without a faculty, and the chancellors of dioceses ought to be extremely careful ere they allow such sales to take place. The learned chancellor of Exeter very wisely recently refused to allow the rector of Church Staunton to sell a chalice of the date 1668 stating that it was painfully repugnant to the feelings of many churchmen that it should be possible that a vessel dedicated to the most sacred service of the church should figure upon the dinner table of a collector. 
He quoted a case of a chalice which had disappeared from a church and been found afterwards with an inscription showing that it had been awarded as a prize at athletic sports. Such desecration is too deplorable for words suitable to describe it. If other chancellors took the same firm stand as Mr. Shodwick Healy, of Exeter, we should hear less of such alienation of ecclesiastical treasure. Canon Affie Warren recently reported to the Suffolk Institute of Archaeology that while he was dining at a friend's house he saw two chalices on the table. Another cause of mutilation and the vanishing of objects of interest and beauty is the iconoclasm of visitors, especially of American visitors, who love our English shrines so much that they like to chip off bits of statuary or wood carving to preserve as mementos of their visit. The fine monuments in our churches and cathedrals are especially convenient to them for prey. Not long ago the best portions of some fine carving were ruthlessly cut and hacked away by a party of American visitors. The verger explained that six of the party held him in conversation at one end of the building while the rest did their deadly and nefarious work at the other. One of the most beautiful monuments in the country, that of the tomb of Lady Maud Fitzallen at Chichester, has recently been cut and chipped by these unscrupulous visitors. It may be difficult to prevent them from damaging such works of art but it is hoped that feelings of greater reverence may grow which would render such vandalism impossible. All civilized persons would be ashamed to mutilate the statues of Greece and Rome in our museums. Let them realize that these monuments in our cathedrals and churches are just as valuable, as they are the best of English art, and then no sacrilegious hand would dare to injure them or deface them by scratching names upon them or by carrying away broken ships as souvenirs. Playful boys in churchyards sometimes do much mischief. In Shrivenham churchyard there is an ancient full-sized effigy, and two village urchins were recently seen amusing themselves by sliding the whole length of the figure. This must be a common practice of the boys of the village, as the effigy is worn almost to an inclined plane. A tradition exists that the figure represents a man who was building the tower and fell and was killed. Both tower and effigy are of the same period early English and it is quite possible that the figure may be that of the founder of the tower but its headdress seems to show that it represents a lady. Whipping posts and stocks are too light a punishment for such vandalism. The story of our vanished and vanishing churches, and of their vanished and vanishing contents, is indeed a sorry one. Many efforts are made in these days to educate the public taste, to instill into the minds of their custodians a due appreciation of their beauties and of the principles of English art and architecture, and to save and protect the treasures that remain. That these may be crowned with success is the earnest hope and endeavor of every right-minded Englishman. Chapter VII Old Mansions One of the most deplorable features of vanishing England is the gradual disappearance of its grand old manor houses and mansions. A vast number still remain. We are thankful to say, we have still left to us Hedden and Wilton, Broaden, Henshurst, Hardwick, Welbeck, Branshill, Longlade, and a host of others, but every year sees a diminution in their number. The great enemy they have to contend with is fire, and modern conveniences and luxuries, electric lighting and the heating apparatus, have added considerably to their danger. The old floors and beams are unaccustomed to these insidious wires that had a habit of fusing. Hence we often read in the newspapers, disastrous fire historic mansion entirely destroyed. Too often not only is the house destroyed, but most of its valuable contents is devoured by the flames. Priceless pictures by Oli and Van Dyke. Miniatures of Coswai, old furniture of Chippendale and Sheridan, and the countless treasures which generations of cultured folk with ample wealth have accumulated. Deeds, 
documents and old papers that throw valuable light on the manners and customs of our forefathers and on the history of the country, all disappear and can never be replaced. A great writer has likened an old house to a human heart with a life of its own, full of sad and sweet reminiscences. It is deplorably sad when the old mansion disappears in a night, and to find in the morning nothing but blackened walls a grim ruin. Our forefathers were a hardy race and did not require hot water pipes and furnaces to keep them warm. Moreover, they built their houses so surely and so well that they scarcely needed these modern appliances. They constructed them with a great square courtyard, so that the rooms on the inside of the quadrangle were protected from the winds. They sang truly in those days, as in these, sing hey-ho for the wind and the rain, for the rain it raineth every day. Illustration, oak paneling, wainscot of 15th century with addition circle late 17th century, fitted onto it an angle of room in the church house, doubtest, come so they sheltered themselves from the wind and rain by having a courtyard or by making an E or H-shaped plan for their dwelling place, moreover, they made their walls very thick in order that the winds should not blow or the rain beat through them, their rooms, too, were paneled or hung with tapestry famous things for making a room warm and cosy, we have plaster walls covered with an elegant wallpaper which has always a cold surface. Hence the air in the room, heated by the fire, is chilled when it comes into contact with the cold wall and creates draughts. But oak paneling or woolen tapestry soon becomes warm, and gives back its heat to the room, making it delightfully comfortable and cosy. One foolish thing our forefathers did, and that was to allow the great beams that helped to support the upper floor to go through the chimney. How many houses have been burnt down out into that fatal beam? But our ancestors were content with a dog grate and wood fires, they could not foresee the advent of the modern range and the great coal fires, or perhaps they would have been more careful about that beam. Fire Island perhaps, the chief cause of the vanishing of old houses, but it is not the only cause. The craze for new fashions at the beginning of the last century doomed to death many a noble mansion. There seems to have been a positive mania for pulling down houses at that period. As I go over in my mind the existing great houses in this country, I find that by far the greater number of the old houses were wantonly destroyed about the years 1820, and new ones in the Italian or some other incongruous style erected in their place. Sometimes, as at Little Whitnam, you find the low-lorn terraces of the gardens of the house, but all else has disappeared. As Mr. Allen Fee says, when an old landmark disappears, who does not feel a pang of regret at parting with something which linked us with the past? Seldom an old house is threatened with demolition but there is some protest, more perhaps from the old associations than from any particular architectural merit the building may have. We have many pangs of regret when we see such wanton destruction. The old house at Weston, where the Throckmortons resided when the poet Cooper lived at the lodge, and when leaving wrote on a window shutter farewell, dear scenes, forever closed to me, oh, for what sorrows must I now exchange ye, may be instanced as an example of a demolished mansion, nothing is now left of it but the entrance gates and a part of the stables, it was pulled down in 1827, it is described as a fine mansion, possessing secret chambers which were occupied by Roman Catholic priests when it was penal to say mass, one of these chambers was found to contain, when the house was pulled down, a rough bed, candlestick, remains of food, and a breviary, a Roman Catholic school and presbytery now occupy its site, it is a melancholy sight to see the wilderness behind the house, still adorned with busts and urns, and the graves of favorite dogs, 
which still bear the epitaphs written by Cooper on Sir John Throckmorton's Blonder and Lady Throckmorton's Pet Spaniel. Capability Brown laid his rude, rough hand upon the grounds, but you can still see the prose alcove mentioned by Cooper, a wooden summer house, much injured by rural carvers, who with knives to face the panels, leaving an obscure rude name. Sometimes, alas, the old house has to vanish entirely through old age. It cannot maintain its struggle any longer. The rain pours through the roof and down the insides of the walls, and the family is as decayed as their mansion, and has no money wherewith to defray the cost of reparation. Our artist, Mr. Fred Rowe, in his search for the picturesque, had one sad and deplorable experience, which he shall describe in his own words, one of the most weird and, I may add, chilling experiences in connection with the decline of county families which it was my lot to experience occurred a year or two ago in a remote corner of the eastern counties. I had received, through a friend, an invitation to visit an old mansion before the inmates descendants of the owners in Elizabethan times left and the contents were dispersed. On a comfortless January morning, while rain and sleet descended in torrents to the accompaniment of a biting wind, I detrained at a small out-of-the-way station in Folk, a weather-beaten old man in a patched greatcoat with the oldest and shaggiest of ponies and the smallest of governess traps, awaited my arrival, I having wedged myself with the Jehu into this miniature vehicle, was driven through some miles of muddy ruts, until turning through a belt of wooded land the broken outlines of an extensive dilapidated building broke into view, this was Hall, I never in my life saw anything so weirdly picturesque and suggestive of the phrase in chancery as this semi-ruinous mansion, of many dates and styles of architecture, from Henry VIII to George III, the whole seemed to breathe an atmosphere of neglect and decay. The waves of affluence and successive rise of various members of 